Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Paul wanted his Jewish brothers and sisters in Rome to realize their own need for a savior. He asks in Romans 3 verse 9, What shall we conclude then? Do we as Jews have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. This verse really summarizes all that he said so far, and though it sounds like a contradiction to what he said earlier that the Jews do enjoy the advantage of having received the scripture, he's saying here that even that advantage cannot provide any preferential treatment when it comes to being under the power of sin. In fact, it makes it a heavier burden. But do you see how he softens the blow a bit by including himself in the summary? He says, do we as Jews have any advantage? He knew how hard these truths were to accept. Paul then begins to use a rabbinic technique of stringing together various Old Testament scriptures, one right after the other. This way of teaching was actually known as stringing pearls. In verse 10 through 18, Paul quotes from various Psalms and also from the prophet Isaiah, confirming from their own scriptures the truths that they needed to face. He begins with a verse many of us are quite familiar with but it's actually part of a longer quote from the Psalms. I'll just read through the pearls, though, as he presented them without commentary or reference. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul uses six different quotes to prove his point from verse 10, that there is no one righteous, not even one. What a stunning list of offences. No one understands or does good or seeks God. They speak deceit and poison. They're quick to do violence and bring ruin and misery. They know nothing of peace, and the root of it all is in the last quote. They do not fear God. And though Paul's point is that all of us are guilty of these offenses and more, these words were written to people who had God's law. They knew these things were wrong and they did them anyway. Paul goes on, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. 
The whole world is answerable to God for their sin, but how would we even know what sin is were it not for God's law? And that really is the reason God gave the law in the first place. It was not given to mankind as a way for us to be declared righteous in God's sight through our works. Rather, it was given so that we would all know how desperately short we fall and how much we all need a saviour. Or, as Paul puts it, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. Paul goes on in verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Mankind's greatest problem is how can we get into a right relationship with God the Father? How can we be free of our fear of Him? How can our separation from Him be ended? How can we find true and lasting peace? The Jews believed that right standing with God came through the law, but Paul has been proving that the law itself cannot solve man's problem. Instead, he points to a true righteousness that comes from God himself and exists apart from the law. In fact, the law and the prophets testify or point to it. This righteousness is given to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. It comes by faith and it is available for Jew and Gentile alike, because the truth is that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter how strictly a person follows God's commandments, at some point they always manage to break them and we always fall short of his glory. But God has revealed a way to be saved, for all who trust in Jesus Christ are justified freely by his grace. I love that word justified that Paul used here in the text. It came from the law courts of the day and in using it he implies that though we all stand before God guilty, we can be reckoned innocent in God's sight because of Christ. To help you grasp the meaning of that theological word justified, think of it as meaning just as if I'd never sinned. You see, because of Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf, God will cleanse those who repent of their sin, and he'll accept us back, not as criminals, but as beloved sons and daughters. Under the old covenant agreement between God and man in the Old Testament, whenever the law was broken, a sacrifice would be offered in the form of an innocent, perfect animal with no fault of its own. That animal would die in place of the lawbreaker and its blood would temporarily cover their sin. But the writer of the book of Hebrews reveals in Hebrews 10.4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so those animal sacrifices had to be offered again and again, year after year, for they could never deal permanently with mankind's sin. 
The gospel, however, reveals that we have now been redeemed through Christ's blood, shed on the cross once for all. His blood has not only paid our debt to God, it has actually taken our sin away. We've been bought back from our old slave master. We have been redeemed. For God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We have been reconciled to God by his great act of mercy in sending Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement is another theological word that can be difficult to understand, but the word atone, spelt A-T-O-N-E, can really be read as two different words, at one. Because of Christ's sacrifice, through the shedding of his blood on the cross, our debt to God is paid, and we can now be at one with God the Father. We can be reconciled to him through our faith in Christ's sacrificial death. God is both loving and just. His justice requires that all sin must be dealt with and that the penalty be paid without partiality. But because God is loving, he sent his own son to take our place and bear the punishment that you and I deserve. Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that in this great exchange, God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this righteousness that comes from God is to be received by faith. The way into a right relationship with the Father is not through our own frenzied efforts to win acquittal by our own performance. Rather, it is by our repentance for sin and by our acceptance of the love and grace that is offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This truth should free us of our arrogance and self-importance. Paul asks in verse 27, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul wanted those in Rome to understand that if the way to God is by faith, then all our boasting about our human achievements is in vain, for we are all sinners, and there's really nothing we can do to pay him back for all that we owe. But God requires faith rather than works. For the only way a person can be justified or made blameless is by faith in what Jesus has already done for us on the cross. Paul then reminded his readers of a basic teaching they all held to when he said in verse 29, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith.
Paul reminded them of the words that began every synagogue meeting, which were, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. If there is only one God, then he is God over both the Jews and the Gentiles, and he will justify all those who have faith in Jesus Christ, whether they were circumcised or not. In verse 31, Paul brings up another question. He knew that some might question his message of a righteousness that came by faith rather than by works because of what that meant with regard to the law. They might wonder if he was preaching a different message to the truth found in the Old Testament and actually trying to do away with the law. So he poses the question, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. He then goes on to answer this question more fully in Romans 4 by referring to Abraham from the Old Testament. Paul wanted them to see that it was Abraham's faith that had made him acceptable to God and there was much to be learned from their forefather's life about true righteousness. So Paul begins to examine what Abraham teaches about faith and justification and in chapter 4 verse 1 he asks, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. As a Jew himself, Paul was a physical descendant of Abraham. Like the Jews in Rome, he could speak of Abraham as being his forefather according to the flesh. But he reminds them that Abraham was not justified or declared blameless before God based on his works. For God only made his commandments known to Moses in the law hundreds of years later, long, long after Abraham's time. So what made Abraham different to other people was not the law, but rather his trust in God and his willingness to believe that the Lord would keep his promises to him. Paul emphasized the words from the Old Testament, Abraham believed God, and it was that belief that was credited to him as righteousness. The key word in this very important statement is credited, because Paul wanted his listeners to understand its significance, he continued, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It is God, you see, who justifies the ungodly. Because Abraham trusted the Lord, he was credited with righteousness as a gift from God. Abraham was not the only person in the Old Testament to discover God's grace and mercy in this way. In verses 6 onwards, Paul brings up David, king of Israel. 
David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Our wrongdoing, our transgressions can be forgiven by God. If we are willing to trust him and ask for forgiveness, he is willing to erase our sins. And this is not based on what we do, but upon our belief in the solution he has sent to us in Christ Jesus. Paul's point is this. Blessed are all those who, like Abraham and David, turn to the Lord and throw themselves upon his mercy, for in that way their sins will never be counted against them. Knowing that both of the examples he'd used from scripture were Jewish people, Paul realized that some might mistakenly conclude that a person not only had to be Jewish, but circumcised as well in order to receive the blessing of God. You see, the Jews believed that as important as a person's ancestry was, Circumcision mattered above all else. They believed that any man who was not circumcised was not truly a Jew. So Paul asks and answers whether or not an individual had to be circumcised in order to receive this blessing of forgiveness by faith. He asks, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The book of Genesis tells us that Abraham was living in a place called Ur in modern-day Iran when he first encountered God. The Lord made him a promise, telling him to go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. By faith alone he believed in God's promised blessing and obeyed leaving his home in Ur to follow God's command. And the book of Genesis tells us that this faith of Abraham was credited to him as righteousness. But you'll notice there's no mention of circumcision in this call to Abraham. That's why Paul states in verse 11 that the act of circumcision that was commanded much, much later in Abraham's journey was merely a sign a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul concludes by making a vital statement. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of all the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised.
first. The Bible reveals that Abraham is father to all who believe as he did, whether or not they've been circumcised. The way to God is not through being part of a particular nation. It is not through having a particular physical mark on your body, but rather it is by faith, a faith that takes God at his word and trusts in him for salvation by grace alone. It was not through the Lord that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression." Long before the law was ever given to Moses, God had made the great and wonderful promise to Abraham that his family would become a great nation, and that through him all of the nations of the world would be blessed, which shows that the Gentiles were part of God's plan from the beginning. That promise has nothing to do with the law. Rather, God, by his kindness and grace, promised to bless Abraham and use him because of his faith. The Jews thought that the way to obtain those promises and blessings of God were through their good works and their obedience to his commands. But in truth, all the Lord but in truth, all the Lord did was bring about transgression, for they disobeyed God's law, which led to God's wrath being upon them. So why would God give the Jews a law they could not keep? It was so that they might see how short of God's standards they fell. It was so that they would know their desperate need for a saviour. Jesus Christ, through whom all mankind is blessed, was a Jew. As to his human ancestry, Abraham was his forefather. After keeping God's law perfectly, Jesus, our sinless Savior, died a death he did not deserve, so that we might receive eternal life, that we have done nothing to merit. We cannot be reconciled to God by our own hard work. That's why Paul says in verse 16, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of men nations. He is our Father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe and those of us who are Abraham's children do come from many different nations. Abraham continued to put his faith in God even as the years passed and promise of descendants seemed to be an increasing impossibility. How did he do that? Well, Paul says in verse 18, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his 
body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, are written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Abraham believed in a God who brings the dead to life, who calls into existence things that are not, a God for whom nothing is impossible. The promise that all nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants was first made when he was a very old man. Not only was Abraham's own body as good as dead, but when God made this promise, his wife Sarah was also well past childbearing age. This couple had always been childless, and now that Abraham was a hundred years old and Sarah around 90, what God had said truly seemed impossible. And yet Paul triumphantly declares that even in those dire circumstances, Abraham chose to believe God's word rather than the circumstances around him. Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but rather he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. How was he able to praise God before the promise was even fulfilled? It was because Abraham was fully persuaded in his heart that God had power to do what he had promised. That was the belief that was credited to him as righteousness. If you know his story, this was not the last time that Abraham chose to believe in God's faithfulness and was rewarded. Abraham and Sarah did conceive and they were blessed with a son, a child they named Isaac. When Isaac was grown, God told Abraham in Genesis 22 to take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. He knew that his descendants were to come through Isaac, and so God's promises to him could not be fulfilled if Isaac died. Nevertheless, because of his faith in the Lord, Abraham set out quickly with his son and some of his servants. When Abraham and Isaac left their servants for the last part of the journey, Abraham told them to wait, promising, we will worship, then we will come back to you. Isn't that a strange thing for him to tell them if he knew that his son was about to die? Later, when Isaac asked his father where the sacrifice was, Abraham answered that God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You see, even then, Abraham believed God. He knew that for him to have descendants, Isaac had to live. 
The writer to the Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 11 verses 17 to 19, stating that it was by faith that Abraham was willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham's faith proved to be well placed for God did provide a ram at that last moment to be offered up in Isaac's place. Isaac went on to marry and fathered Jacob and Esau. Jacob's twelve sons then became the start of the twelve tribes of Israel and their descendants truly did become as numerous as the sand on the shore just as God had promised. But the ram was also a symbol that pointed forward thousands of years to God's own son, who would come to die in our place on that very same hill. Jesus Christ, who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Paul could give no greater proof that righteousness comes through faith than Father Abraham. And when Paul declares in verse 23 that the words it was credited to him were written not for Abraham alone, but also for us, he was referring to something the Jews would have understood. In those days, the rabbis would say that what was written of Abraham was also written of his children, meaning that any promise made by God to Abraham could also be applied to Abraham's descendants. Paul wanted them to understand that if Abraham's faith had brought him into a right relationship with God, the same can be true for all of us. For if we believe in God, Abraham is our father, and if his faith was credited to him as righteousness, then ours will be as well. And as we continue to trust him, our lives will be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Truly, what was impossible with man is possible with God. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.